Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. And from IU School of Public Health Bloomington, addressing public health needs by preventing disease, promoting health, and improving quality of life across the state and around the world through research, teaching, and community engagement. Offering undergraduate and advanced degrees. publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of The Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And this week, we're going to talk about the Verizon versus FCC case on net neutrality. And we're going to explain a lot more about that as the program goes along. We have two great guests with us in the studio. Barbara Cherry is here. She is formerly a deputy in the Office of Strategic Planning at the FCC. She also has worked for AT&T and Ameritech. And now she works for Indiana University. She has a JD, a PhD, and she's a professor in the Department of Telecommunications at IU. And also with us is Colin McCarty. Colin is the executive vice president of Smithville Communications, and he's obviously watching this debate very closely as well. You can join us uh, on the phone by calling 855-0811 in Bloomington or 877-285-9348. You can also join a live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. And you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So welcome to everybody. Thanks, Colin. Thanks, Thank you, Barbara. Bob. Thanks for being here. Mary Thank Catherine. You. Hi, Bob. Welcome yeah. back. Yeah, we're, Missed uh, you last week. Yeah, I was out last week. Uh, okay, so net neutrality. It's a And this whole discussion, I guess the, the court case in a – uh, an appeals court was Monday. They heard the arguments on Monday. So, um, Barbara, could you sort of set the stage, explain to us a little bit, give us the, the 30,000-foot view? Sure, and thank you for the opportunity to do that. Um, net neutrality is a debate that is easily misunderstood. Um, so let me try and give the bare bones. Net neutrality is a debate that arose in the United States as a result of some critical decisions by the FCC. And in particular, in 2002, the FCC issued uh, a declaratory ruling stating that cable modem access, um, this form of broadband Internet access, is not a common carriage service, is not a telecommunication service under the Act, which is a common carriage service, but instead is an information service which is covered by Title II, uh, Title I as opposed to Title II. So it's a different legal classification. Um, this was ultimately upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court in a case referred to as Brand X. And then the F- upon that happening, the FCC then reclassified the other broadband uh, Internet access provider services, such as DSL, as likewise being no longer a telecommunication service by an informa- as an information service. So what does this mean? Under um, federal statute, depending upon what classification a service has, different um, statutory provisions apply, and the jurisdiction of the FCC is very different. And so the classification scheme sets the path for going down one road versus a totally different one. By being classified as information service, what it means is the whole Title II framework for statutory common carriage does not apply. And the jurisdiction of the FCC is therefore limited to just Title I jurisdiction for an information service. And the scope of the FCC's jurisdiction is much, much more limited. So net neutrality is actually a response to, it's sort of the collective phrase that refers to the whole host of problems that arise because of this classification. Um, One of the reasons why net neutrality could become confusing is because there isn't just one problem. There's a whole category or or group of problems, and sometimes people talk about net neutrality, but they aren't specific which of all the problems that arose are they referring to. So that's why it can be confusing to read about because sometimes you think people are talking about different things. Well, they actually are sometimes referring to different problems, but they're under this general label. Mm -hmm. So net neutrality is basically a backlash, if you will, Mm -hmm. response by people saying, well, if we're not going to have the regulation under Title II, what kind of regulation or obligations are going to apply to providers and information services? Mm -hmm. And the FCC's attempt in these rules of 2010 
uh, reflect um, the latest attempt by the FCC to try and establish some basic rules by which information service providers would have to um, uh, abide by. So that's kind of the simplest way, I think, to explain it. Well, yeah, what are the some of the Title II uh, rules? Are, are these the rules that we traditionally associate with, like, television and radio stations? No. It's no. what you associate with telephone service. Okay. Um, Title VI is a separate provision um, that deals with cable. There's different – the Communications Act of 34 has different titles or divisions on it. Common carriage is a form – that's what Title II is, a statutory version of common carriage. And common carriage um, – applies to the historical telephone or telegraph. And here's the most basic obligations. The most basic obligations, and they have their origins under the common law that way precede even having statutes. So these obligations have their origins hundreds of years ago during the Middle Ages under the English common law. So what are the basic obligations of a common carrier? To provide service upon reasonable request, without unreasonable discrimination, at just and reasonable prices, and with adequate care. Rely, uh, you know, reliability, not negligence. Those are the basic obligations. And initially, they only existed under the common law, but the common law requires that customers have to go to court to win their cases. And that was considered, during the late 19th century, too cumbersome. It was too much of an advantage, initially railroads, um, mm-hmm. to win in litigation. And that's why we ended up having this whole commission oversight. It started with railroads, and then was later added to telephone and telegraph. And that all preceded even having FCC. So um, the whole idea is that only certain kinds of entities have common carriage obligations. Um, Cable, broadcasting, they are not common carriers. Common Mm -hmm. carriage is is a legal status that comes with entities that essentially carry information, well, initially physical things, but then information of the customer's choosing from one place to another. Mm -hmm. And they aren't supposed to be um, doing anything to the content. They're just supposed to be a conduit, if you will. Right. Yeah, okay. it's a, it, I, you, I, that's a great explanation yeah. for it. I'm just trying trying to make sure that you know, to bring it down to to my level. I mean, it's like it really is a, a case. You know, we deal with this sometimes even with in internet law with the newspaper. It's like, what is our obligation mm-hmm. for things that are published on our site? And you know, that's been sort of a, a debate about if we. If we edit something, then it becomes our responsibility. If we just let it go, then we're more like – it's almost more like a common carrier kind of – Well, it's a little different. I mean the press is not considered common yeah, carriage. Sure. And, and of course the press itself has its own free press yeah. protection under the First Amendment. Yeah. Um, but it is, it's this, um, this sort of technical debate versus a content kind of Yeah, the basic debate, thing is this. <laughs> this whole lawsuit – was actually sort of the FCC created its own problem. By classifying this service, broadband access to the Internet, as not a telecommunications Title II service, mm-hmm. then its jurisdiction is exclusively under Title I for an information service. And this whole case is about what is the scope of the FCC's authority to impose obligations on information service providers under Title I. Mm-hmm. It really is – that is the simplest way to do it. You cannot understand this debate without understanding that that's the fundamental legal – this is legal technicality. So if I can just give you just one example that's different. Up in Canada, they don't have this distinction. Under the Canadian statute, broadband access to the internet is still considered telecommunications common carriage service. So when they talk about network neutrality problems, they mean – um, what additional obligations might need to be placed on these companies, keeping in mind um, something unique about the property of what they're – something unique about what the service is doing that maybe hasn't done before, but they don't have a fundamental jurisdiction problem. In other words, the Canadian Commission doesn't have to fight this, do we have jurisdiction or not, because they clearly do. If the FCC had simply classified this service as a telecommunication service, we wouldn't, this lawsuit wouldn't be here like this. They wouldn't be challenging the authority of the FCC. At best, you would be seeing just an argument um, which Verizon also raises trying to claim there's some kind of constitutional infirmity under the, under the First Amendment. But the whole jurisdictional thing is actually, and as you will see from reports of the oral arguments on Monday, the vast majority of the discussion was over this whole common carriage thing. In other words, do you have the authority to do this or not? The FCC could cure this by simply going back and reclassifying the service. Mm-hmm. Do Call they have the power to do that? Yes, they do. Okay. But they would have to have a proceeding and go through 
the requisite proceedings under the Administrative Procedures Act to do that. But they could reconsider and decide that it's shouldn't be classified anymore as an information service. In fact, a court it, doesn't have to make that decision. The no, FCC can go no. through the proper steps and make that decision themselves. Well, in fact, the FCC initially considered DSL to be a telecommunication service. Hmm. And um, what the FCC did in 2002 was a radical left turn from what they had done before. What this was is, the motivation behind that, do you think? Well, I was just joining the FCC when that order came out. So I personally wasn't involved with it. But I have talked to staffers at the FCC who were. And the simplest explanation I can give you is that I was told at the agency that most of the lawyers and engineers who worked on this had recommended to the commissioners that it be classified as a telecommunications service. But at that time, um, it was a majority Republican commissioners, and it was their view that this is what they wanted. This is their view of deregulation to facilitate deregulation was to classify it as an information service and by definition, therefore, more limit the ability of the FCC to put any kind of regulation on it. So I would say – I think it's fair to say it was just as much a political decision, mm-hmm. you know, which, po- which policy decisions are. Mm-hmm. And so it was a policy decision. They could have just as easily have gone the other way as a legal matter. Okay. All right. Before I bring Colin in, I want to give our phone numbers. If you have any questions about uh, any of this, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. You can also join a live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. Uh, Colin McCarty is the Executive Vice President of Smithville Communications. And, of course, Colin, you do a lot of things, including being an Internet provider. And mm-hmm. so I'm sure you're watching this very closely. I mean, how do you um, sort of – come down on this debate, this argument? Well, I, as a carrier, I think uh, I, I side a little bit with what Verizon's saying. I certainly understand it. Um, but I also see where, um, to Barbara's point, the clarity would have been much easier for everybody as, as a provider. But that said, um, I, I think Verizon has uh, an interesting point in that um, if if you regulate now, if you allow uh, that type of regulation in Title I, what does that open the door for, for other types of, of regulation? And we've gone this far. We've had commercial Internet for almost 20 years now. So how far do we want to go to ensure broadband access, ubiquitous broadband access, robust broadband access, uh, and continue to allow innovation to occur. Mm-hmm. I think that's those are the arguments being made right now. And quite honestly, um, I'd like to see us continue along the path we've been going. Uh, but, um, you know, it, it does create confusion, on the other hand, mm-hmm. when you don't have any type of clarity coming from the FCC. Because I think, in my personal opinion, that if we did go under Title II, it would, it would give us a better or more clear path as a carrier to actually build out more broadband because the, the um, policy regime that allowed the voice network to grow and become really a, a, a world-class, the best network in the world uh, when we were all phone companies, um, I was, I'm disappointed that that never carried over into the data world. And without some kind of, you know, hand, hand-to-hand public-private regulation that allows for growth in the industry like we've seen since the divestiture of the Bell system the past 30 years. Um, I'd like to see that continue for the data side of it, but it hasn't happened. Mm-hmm. So it's it, it's kind of a double-edged sword, uh, the way I look at it, that you know, I'm not, not all for, you know, you got to be careful for what you ask for in regulation, <laughs> but at the same time, um, we we don't have any clarity as carriers from the FCC, and uh, and that's a that's troublesome. So this whole argument, just to be, again, I, I told you before the show, I was going to ask the dumb questions. Just to be real clear, no though, question. we're talking about access and infrastructure, not content. Well, let me, fo- let me, well, fo- let me follow up on that. Yeah, this. It's, it's, it's almost like I need, you need the, this question uh, to be a little more specific let, for me let to me answer fo- it. Yeah, let me follow but, up on this. Okay. And, and I think I'll ask it to Colin. Mm-hmm. So um, Verizon has concerns about restrictions 
that that the FCC or the, the FCC is getting involved with some restrictions. What what is what are they saying Verizon's doing that they shouldn't do? What are they? I mean, what what's Verizon's concern? I mean, I've, I've read that you know they they might slow down certain content that isn't stuff originating from them, things like that. Am I reading right? There is a lot of probability on both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, Verizon could slow down access to certain sites or discriminate because uh, it's getting its network is seeing congestion coming from, let's say, Netflix, and it has to, you know, it has to throttle it. Verizon is saying there's the probability that the FCC will get in the way, these regulations will get in, in the way of us managing our network and allowing us to control flow of information to satisfy customer demand the way we need to. So there's that's why I say there's a lot of probability from both sides. So there's nothing really concrete. I, I think I understand better probably what the nature of, of your, your question is. Originally, common carriers, telephone and telegraph companies, did not provide any of their own content. They simply provided an infrastructure by which the users themselves decided what information was going to be sent to and from, to whom, and what the content was going to be. What's different in the world we're in now is that these infrastructures are such that they're being utilized to provide more than one kind of service, so that in addition to transmitting information, if you will, or content of the choosing of the customer, uh, companies like Verizon are also in the business of providing content of their own. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, the concern is, in this sense, you're becoming um, – you're, you're, it's a form of vertical integration to the extent to which, for example – you're controlling facilities and then as well as content. Mm-hmm. And so the concern is because they control and own an important part of the infrastructure, they might use their control of that infrastructure to discriminate in favor of their own content offerings or other parts of their business that leverages and uses this infrastructure and advantage themselves over other parties who don't own that infrastructure. So that's mm-hmm. one concern. One way of doing that is by charging um, content providers themselves, um, charges to people to be able to contact uh, to contact them. Another might be to charge the end users themselves, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, charges that are based on your usage. And already what's happening is your usage, if you, for, let's just use Verizon as an example. If Verizon was doing usage billing, they might exclude um, the amount of usage to their own content, it won't count against your data cap, but anybody else will. So in that mm-hmm. sense, the customer is also paying more to access content that's not of Verizon's business. So there's a concern that there's all these different ways in which a company could build their business strategy or their business model. Just to drill a little deeper on that uh, before I go to the phone. So that would be like if they had a – Comcast had a deal with a particular – um, search engine, Google or Bing or somebody, they could say, well, if you use Google, we're not going to charge you extra. But if you use Bing, we're going to charge you each time you use it. I mean, that that you could get to that point. Yes, you, you can know. start mm-hmm. to get all yeah. sorts, and it'd be hard to predict right. all the different ways, you, clever ways you might be able mm-hmm. to develop yeah. a, a business strategy. And so these are some of the concerns um, as well. And then a good point that Colin brings out about network management practices. Well, here's the rub. <laughs> Network management practices, of course, companies that run their infrastructures, um, they need the ability to be able to manage them. But to what extent does network management practices become a vehicle through which to, again, perform some kinds of discriminations for other business issues? And you call it network management practices, but it's really the cover story mm-hmm. for trying to generate more revenue streams. And this is already what's considered a concern, and not just in the United States, up in Canada and in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the fact that, so even if these other commissions in other countries have a clear jurisdiction and don't have that technical legal problem, they are all looking at concerns about the different kinds of business strategies and practices that might be invoked by companies that now do multiple things. Mm-hmm. And uh, to what degree should they, should it, or should it not be permitted? And mm-hmm. that's where you have a, a lot of debate. Okay, we have a phone call, and Nancy's been very patient. Nancy, go ahead. Hello. Hi. 
now, are, are you asking uh, for my input about how this affects us here uh, locally? Sure, yeah. Okay, in Seymour, uh, we have lines that are apparently arbitrarily drawn by providers, and I had to fall outside a, a, a um, metropolitan area that uh, allows us to uh, turn our antennas toward Louisville. I live 60 miles away from Louisville and approximately 60 miles away from Indianapolis and Bloomington, and I cannot find out what's happening in detail by television uh, with some of the providers here. Uh, in the legislature, for instance, I hear all about what's happening in Kentucky and what decisions they're making, and good, well and good, they're doing good things, I hope. Uh, since I'm not living there, I really can't judge. But uh, in Indiana, I have no uh, contact, and I did complain to IU that uh, when I was asked, to support the uh, public television, which I think all of us need to, uh, to get a uh, reasonable amount of fairness in the uh, way the news is presented. But anyway, uh, how can I uh, say I support the Indiana television when all I can get is Kentucky. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, Nancy, let's uh, try to – I'm going to ask Barbara if she can address uh, this issue. I mean, it's, it's not exactly net neutrality, but that's okay. We were no, – it's um, a legitimate issue to talk about. That's a – it's not actually affected by the net neutrality issue per se because now you're talking about um, companies that are involved in the broadcasting business. Um, and whether you're talking about over the air or cable. And it's a different section or title, titles, different parts of the act that deal with that. Um, and, and to that point, um, different companies uh, choose to serve different areas, and they have to get uh, franchise agreements um, with the communities that they serve. Um, that limit that limits the people that are being served to uh, take what's available. It sounds like uh, some third world country to me. When uh, at one point uh, with one carrier, I could reach uh, UCLA and get mm -hmm. uh, medical information through that. When I couldn't get uh, through IU. That well, kind of information, you know, it's just so uh, arbitrary. And to tell you the truth, I think it's a political decision here locally, uh, which companies get what. And uh, it's really not fair when our 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 particular county is has been gerrymandered to be divided into three different uh, separate state representative persons, and, you know, as it seems mm -hmm. to me that it, it has uh, the potential to be gerrymandered, to be uh, unfairly weighted toward one party or the other. Well, Nancy, maybe I can help you um, in, in this respect. Um, my understanding, uh, over the years, many, many states have preempted their municipalities from granting franchises. So now the franchises for cable, for example, are granted on a statewide level. And my recollection is Indiana falls under that. Um, so in term, it's at the state level that it, that it determines um, where these companies have the authority to serve or not. Where net neutrality might potentially be important for you is to the extent to which you are not getting certain kinds of news or information directly from your cable or satellite TV provider, to the extent to which you might be able to get some of that information by going on, going on the Internet 
and be able to search through the Internet to get that kind of information. This is where you will be impacted by what happens with net neutrality uh, because your ability to go and get additional information through the Internet can be um, negatively affected if these companies are not treated as common carriers. So let me give you an example. A common carrier has the obligation to serve upon reasonable request. They can't refuse to serve you. If they're not a common carrier, they can. They can pick and choose where they want to serve. Mm -hmm. So even though you would be entitled to get regular, what we call narrowband telephone service, you're not entitled to be able to get broadband. And so you're subject to the business strategies of these companies, and some of these large companies want to pull out their copper wire or discontinue the copper wire. And if they provide you broadband at all, they might do it over wireless, and then that's a lot more expensive. Mm-hmm. Well, then that 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 they have absolutely too much power in the and well, the individual. Uh, individual companies, they need to be treated fairly, well, don't they? Well, and this is the fundamental legal question, and this is why this debate's been raging on for over a decade now, because in 2002, this classification as not being common carriage has, in fact, enabled these companies to have certain kinds of um, freedoms to develop business plans differently than if they had been classified as telecommunications. Nancy, I'm going to ask uh, Barbara to give you one last bit of advice, and that is who's the best person for her to go to? Would it be somebody – I mean, this is a federal – federal legislation to get this reclassified, right? I mean, well, it would be the FCC to get this reclassified, so. Yes, there's two, there's legally two different avenues that could happen. Either the FCC could reclassify the service, and they still have a docket open that they never closed, where under the previous FCC chairman, um, they were starting to look at reclassifying it. So they have a docket they could revitalize to do it. You know Uh, what? I have already talked to them uh, in my latest uh, attempt to uh, get service. Right now I'm using a, a cheap cell phone and have been without television and landline and uh, my computer since August 22nd. Well, Nancy, we're going to have to we're going to have to let we're going to have to let you go. I want Barbara to, to give you a couple of ideas. So um, there's a Consumer Affairs luck. Bureau at the FCC. If you if okay. that you okay. can complain to. All right, we're out of time for the uh, first half of the show. So thanks, Nancy. We've got a phone caller. We're going to get to after the break, but uh, we're talking with uh, Barbara Cherry and Colin McCarty about. Uh, net neutrality and the Verizon versus FCC case and some other issues involving telecommunications. So give us a a call uh, after the break. You're listening to Noon Edition. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. And IU School of Public Health Bloomington. Online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiu.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIU.org news. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And today we're talking with Barbara Cherry, who is uh, formerly a deputy in the Office of the Strategic Plan- of Strategic Planning for the FCC. She also worked for AT&T and Ameritech and is now a professor at Indiana University in telecommunications. And Colin McCarty is the executive vice president of Smithville Communications, and he's also here in the studio with us. We're talking about... Uh, the case that was heard 
Monday, Verizon versus the FCC. Uh, very um, interesting, um, but kind of complex case on net neutrality, but it could have big implications coming down the road. So that's what we're talking about today. You can join us at 855-0811 in Bloomington or 877-285-9348 from Seymour, as Nancy just did, or any place outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join a live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. And you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. And Larry has been on the phone since before the break, so we're going to go directly to him. Larry? Uh, hello. I'll, um, I'm delighted you're dealing with this uh, question on the program. I will try to organize my thoughts and be succinct. Um, for me, the issue of common carrier versus non-common carrier, or versus strictly business model, uh, has very troubling aspects because if the decisions are all made, you know, according to what, uh, you know, benefits the bottom line, um, you can end up with what is a kind of de facto uh, censorship, not so much because a certain information provider is politically incorrect or whatever, but uh, simply because if the business model um, favors mm, preferred and more profitable content over the rest and the other providers of content are forced to suffer uh, reduced communication bandwidth, then uh, they're inherently placed at a disadvantage. Um, additionally, if the business model uh, permits charging content providers for access to the network, then you get into a, into a very difficult situation where only major content providers, you know, for practical, for business reasons, they may not be able to, small providers, alternate points of view, may not simply be able to afford to pay for access. Mm -hmm. So if the decisions are strictly business, um, then it's not only not content neutral, it so strongly can favor what is advantageous to the business without regard to other considerations. Mm -hmm. For instance, if I, if I want to get a point of view across on the television, I simply cannot afford to buy an ad. And the same principle could come to bear on the Internet um, if it costs money to gain access to the subscriber base. So these are, my, these are my concerns that content inevitably ends up getting controlled, whether on purpose or as a byproduct. Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask uh, Cullen to respond to this. Cullen has, of course, a business that has uh, broadband as a major part of it and also television, cable, as a part of it. So. Oh, and, and Smithville has been doing a great job. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I, I'm not criticizing anybody. Oh, I know. No, I, 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 I certainly know you're not, but he's in a unique position to be able to respond, I think. Yeah. No, and, and thank you for that, Larry. Uh, it, it's a – and I can't disagree with what Larry's saying. Um, it's a very difficult situation when you um, have been providing service under a utility model for so long as a common carrier, and the the recent changes within the FCC in terms of of cost recovery that we've had to deal with have forced us to make business cases. And when we do that, then we have to go and take some of the more more rural areas and say, okay, we're going to have to delay deployment of certain broadband expansion to a certain area or even an upgrade. And focus on the marketplace, which Comcast is our biggest competitor. Uh, we also compete in other areas against Bright House and against New Wave Communications. And so they're very aggressive. And, and yeah, we have to meet that demand head on. Um, that takes away from the old model of carrier of last resort where you provide the same type of service in, let's say, <laughs> Porter Ridge <laughs> that you would get mm -hmm. – in in Ellettsville in town, and that's um, it's it's becoming a, an actual self fulfilling prophecy of digital divide that we've tried to avoid for years and years. 
and our, the rural industry has really harped upon. So when we get into these situations, we, we don't have much of a choice but to take a close look at even the more rural areas where there are pockets of, of relative density. We have to say, okay, we can do it here, but we can't do it there where there are only a few homes. And that's very frustrating because we do want to deliver. Yes. So, but, of course, in that, in that case, even though there's an inequity there, uh, it's structural and it's content neutral. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I live mm-hmm. out in the boonies mm-hmm. and my bandwidth is less, I still have the same access to everything, uh, you know, more or less equally, even at reduced bandwidth. Mm-hmm. Right. But if the business model allows uh, decisions that, while their intent may not to be, may not be, uh, you know, to oppose content neutrality, the effect can be that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's specifically in creating, for even those with, that have high bandwidth, a, a two- or three-tiered structure where uh, certain providers are in a lower tier and have less access, and mm-hmm. customers may also be asked to pay a higher premium in order you know, to get better throughput to the services that are not provided by the, you know, the network provider. Barbara? Uh, yes, Larry, you're very right that one of the concerns, and it's talked about a lot, um, both in Washington and among state commissioners with the state utility commissions, that the consequences of regulations or rules that you do or do not have can lead to very different consequences, whether they're intended or not. Right. And so the fact that it could be not intended but de facto, or, or another way of saying it, it emerges as a property of that kind of um, system is very real, and that's one of the uh, concerns. What's interesting here is, and I find myself needing to differentiate, um, common carriage is not the same thing as public utility. They're actually two different bodies of law, um, at least under the common law, and then they got kind of merged in the statutory version. And basically it's this. A common carrier just has to, if they vol- if they decide to get into a business... They have to provide service, as I mentioned before, upon reasonable request, unjust, no unjust discrimination, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. A public utility is different. A public utility gets some kind of franchise, some kind of power from the government that authorizes them to provide service. It may or may not be exclusive, but part of the quid pro quo of the franchise are certain obligations that come with it. And in historically, in the telephone world, it's included obligations such as care of last resort. In other words, once you build out, you also cannot just exit without permission. Mm-hmm. What's difficult in this whole debate is the origins of all that public utility care of last resort stuff is actually under state law, not federal. And, and these companies are regulated both at the federal level and at the state level. And so you have to have coordination between all the state laws and, you know, and commissions and so forth, as well as the FCC. And they sometimes get conflated or confused. The net neutrality debate that we're talking about here and the rules that are being challenged by Verizon in this lawsuit have nothing to do with the public utility aspect. They've got nothing to do with being a carrier of last resort or not being able to exit. They really have to do with just the kind of obligations you would bear if, similar to a common carrier, you couldn't discriminate unreasonably or you can't block uh, access. So that's just an important point I wanted to make. Carrier of last resort, that's a whole other set of legal problems, but it's not not really what's at issue in this lawsuit before uh, before, uh, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Yes, I'm thinking more of a situation where the post office would decide to charge three times as much postage for deliveries, you know, to a certain part of the country uh, simply because they don't have as favorable a contract with the, yes. you know, uh, le- values for leasing warehouse space and things like that. You're exactly right. And did you know, Larry, that legally the postal system is a common carriage system? Exactly. That's why they can't do that. That's my point. <laughs> exactly. And that's what a lot of people don't realize. And the fact that we now, in addition, not only say... The Internet 
does not have to have these, – these providers don't have common carriage obligations. It's because of the Internet that we're having so much substitution of electronic communication instead of first-class mail. That's actually serving to undermine the business model of the postal system. That's so what? Good. We're allowing a non-common carriage service to substitute for a common carriage? Well, Talking about a de facto problem, I mean, this. I spotted this about – I published some, uh, an article about this about six years ago. And I was talking about, do we understand that this road we're going down with the Internet can lead to undermining the postal system? And it was one of the reasons why I said we should really think twice about this common carriage classification. Because now you're used to being able to at least go to a postal system, a post office, and mail a letter or a package. And the right. kind of unreasonable discrimination you're talking about isn't permitted. We're yeah. under this classification of Internet access service. You can do the kinds of things that, mm-hmm. unfortunately, Larry's mentioning. Larry, we're going to have to we're going to have to move on. Uh, but I really appreciate your calls yeah. and your, the issues that you brought up. Thanks, Larry. Yes, yes. And, and my, I guess my point is that the, the the issue has serious possible ramifications that that even come down to affecting freedom of speech. So I mm-hmm. hope yes. it gets, I hope mm-hmm. it gets good attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Thanks. That's what we're that's what, that's what we're here for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Larry. Okay, we have another caller who's been very patient. Dave is on the phone. Dave. Hello. Hello, Dave. Go ahead. Yes. I remember reading about at least one case where um, internet service providers have blocked access on purely political reasons. And I think this is just an attempt to eliminate free speech. Can you I be business through their Republican uh, appointees? Can you be uh, more specific? Or Barbara, you were kind of nodding your head. Do you know of a case yeah. like that? Yeah. I ha- I haven't had time since the program started to look up. That's okay. What the case was. Yeah. Well, there's been. Some cases where people have – well, when they talk about – when I first was nodding, we were talking about blocking access. Uh, yeah. For example, certain applications called BitTorrent, mm-hmm. um, where there's uh, a lot more information or the equivalent of a lot more bandwidth being carried. There was an instance – I believe it was over the cell phone network, though, mm-hmm. where a telephone company was bla- blocking text messages uh, with regard to – related to a political issue. And they were quickly reprimanded. Um, but that's because, at least in that respect, wireless cellular is a common carriage service. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, um, at the, so they, um, there were uh, repercussions from having done that. But the whole point is, as Dave mentioned, it does enable the, – the less you have certain kinds of basic rules of the game by which these companies have to play by, the more you enable – them to develop strategies that, whether for intended or mm-hmm. unintended reasons, can have these de facto consequences. And one of the de facto could be, for example, that certain kinds of content, um, let's say for political re- reasons, could be manipulated. I mean, you can't rule that out. Mm-hmm. So, well, Barb, if you're using your cell phone just for voice, that falls under a common carrier laws. But if you're using it for data, which most of us do, let's say you're downloading something from a website, then, it then it's does, not. Then it's not. Exactly. Same device, two sets of laws. Yes, the same thing with the copper wire that comes into your house. The copper wire into your house, if it's regular narrowband telephone mm-hmm. voice, that's common carriage. If it's the same copper wire, DSL, broadband, it's not. And it's totally the result of this ruling by the FCC. Interesting. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned uh, bit as to the first one, not to the well. It's related. Yeah, I, I have a, a story from NPR Morning Edition. Uh, BitTorrent was a major part of this. How this thing got started. Apparently, it was somebody who was trying to download barbershop quartets and found that his provider, Comcast, was slowing down BitTorrent, and so he he couldn't get the barbershop quartets in the speed that he he wanted. And he did a little sleuthing. He was kind of a techie guy and found out that Comcast was actually slowing down his ability to get what he wanted. And that's one of the places this whole thing started. Yes. In this case, it was a certain application. It wasn't that Verizon knew the content of what it was the person wanted to download, but the fact that a person was using an application that requires more bandwidth. That sounds really sinister. Is there ever, and maybe, Colin, I don't know, maybe both of you can address this, but is there ever a reason, and we were talking about management of a, a network, are there good reasons for slowing certain data flows down? Probably on an individual case basis, uh, um, 
if there's a malware site, <laughs> I, I can't. Um, they would have to be fairly drastic, I think, mm. to to legitimately slow a site down. Um, so, what would have been the motivation for slowing down the application that this guy was trying to access his barbershop quartet? Uh, I'm not sure. I, well, the amount of bandwidth uh, yeah. being well, let's put it this way. Um, if we want to wear a hat, as I did in industry <laughs> for 15 years, if you want to put on your, your management hat, uh, what you're looking at um, are opportunities. They're private companies, um, profit motive. They have to answer to Wall Street and the market. Mm-hmm. And so they're looking for revenue streams, profitability. So one reason for blocking content or blocking applications that use more bandwidth is that it could be a business opportunity to charge more to those users who want to use those applications. In other words, they have to pay more in order to use that application, and the justification would be because they're using more bandwidth. And so there's a way to make money from that. And so that's not an evil, if you want to put it this way, it's not to say that's an evil thing, but it's an inherent um, incentive that exists as a way to make more money. And so what some of these companies would like to do is they want to be relieved of certain of these obligations in order to enable them to generate different revenue streams than historically they've been able to or might otherwise be able to. And the whole tension is between to what degree do we want them to be able to generate these revenue streams in different ways and to what extent it might have Mm-hmm. some adverse consequences in the public interest. And it's all part of this balancing act. If our broadband subscribers want to view an event on ESPN3, mm-hmm. we have to pay ESPN3 right. every month per subscriber. So that's a, a perfect example of of the content provider charging the access provider for their content. And ESPN is a high premium mm-hmm. content provider. So at any time there's an, you know, a renewal uh, for TV content for ESPN and ABC Disney. Included with that is an additional fee up front for ESPN3 and various <coughs> Disney applications and ABC-related applications as well. So we have to we have to figure that in our calculation in terms of a, a higher tier package mm-hmm. for TV. So that's that's an example where. You know, it's it's not just us, the access provider, but it's also the content provider that's driving that. We've got time for another question or two. If you want to give us a call, 855-0811 in Bloomington or 877-285-9348 outside of Bloomington. Also, WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. Um, we've had a question come in online. It says, is the designation of broadband as an information service the reason why it's been harder for rural areas to gain broadband access? Yes, it contributes to that because <clears throat> by not being classified as a telecommunications service, there is no obligation to serve upon reasonable request. Mm-hmm. And so that can be a um, – now, even even as a common care and a public utility on the state side who also has an obligation to serve, it doesn't mean that 100 percent of the time you would have to. In some cases, a place might be so expensive to serve. Mm-hmm. You might not have to build out. But that would be because a commission with jurisdiction would mm-hmm. make that decision, not because the company unilaterally could. Right. Um, by not being classified as common carriage at the federal level and not a public utility at the state level, then you have no regulatory intervention to try and weigh uh, the interests of the customers who want service and the financial burden on the company. Mm-hmm. And so that's why it does matter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, Colin, you're a you're a big local company, but you're a small mm-hmm. company when it comes to comparing to Comcast and lots of other people. But right. you've really chosen to try to get into the the rural niche. And the, you mentioned before the digital divide as a as a significant issue for you. And mm-hmm. I, I wanted you to just talk about that a little bit more about your you know your interest in trying to make sure that everybody has you know the opportunity to participate in the new technologies. Uh, yeah, and and we've been <coughs> preaching this for a very long time, uh, since broadband rolled out around 02 in earnest. And it, it, it boils down to we've been um, mandated to provide quality voice service to all customers. And it, rural um, 
urban doesn't matter at just and reasonable rates. That said, we've been in that mindset for so long, I go back to we haven't had an opportunity to take that into the data world. I mean, we can go fairly rural, but they have to be in pockets of density in order for us to make it happen. So to what Barbara was saying, it had we had some kind of Title II regulation where you just you adjust your voice regulation into a data world, mm-hmm. then, yeah, we could have built out sooner and faster speeds, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's where we are today, and it really makes it very difficult. So in some ways, we are um, – we're like what the old bell companies have become, that we have great service in some areas with fiber, and we have other services with copper that they get maybe 128K or 56K if somebody else, you know, is using a lot of the bandwidth. That's, and we want to upgrade those facilities, but it's, it's awfully hard. And, um, but we're, we're rural. Those were the charges we were given is to provide that quality voice service. And yet we still have that twisted pair of copper that's clinging to the last strand of regulation, but it's very powerful. So if we can find a way to, to make, I don't know, like I said, got to be careful what I ask for, um, some kind of a, a, a priority for the federal government to understand that what we did with voice, we can do with data, but we have to have a same similar framework mm-hmm. to make that happen. Mm-hmm. If we just can't go out and build it, and then voila, it's all done. Mm-hmm. That seems to be yeah. the, the thinking of some policymakers right now. We have one minute to go. In, in the last 30 seconds, Barbara, I don't, I don't, that's a very short period of time, but if the FCC decides, or if the court decides the FCC exceeded its authority, what what will that mean? Will that mean the end of net, net neutrality or do you know? It you? depends how far <laughs> the, it goes. They could say they had some authority but went too far. As to, I, from what I've read about the oral argument, it appears they might uphold part of it but not all of it. But okay. the basic guy, the basic, here's the basic thing. If they reclassify as Title II, title two, there's a lot more they can do. Mm-hmm. If they don't reclassify as Title II, they're limited by the scope of the jurisdiction mm-hmm. that the court's going to rule they have under Title I, and there's not going to be much they can do other than maybe Congress then passing mm-hmm. a law giving them approval or some okay. more jurisdiction. All right. Thank you both very much, Barbara Cherry and Colin McCarty. It's been a very uh, interesting conversation. I know I learned a lot. Uh, for co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael, producers Gretchen Frazee, Emily Wright, and Kyle Halp, and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net and from IU School of Public Health Bloomington, addressing public health needs by preventing disease, promoting health, and improving quality of life across the state and around the world through research, teaching, and community engagement, offering undergraduate and advanced degrees, publichealth.indiana.edu.